Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 91 of the Combinate podcast with Susan Needle. On this episode, we discuss her new book, The Combination Products Handbook. We talk about the first part of the book that's focused on the general topics. We kind of go through chapter by chapter. I ask my questions, and uh, I love the uh, lessons that she learned around authoring chapters and coordinating the book project. Episode two on this related to the special topic section of the book will be out in the next few weeks. I truly hope you enjoy this episode with Susan. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please hit the pause button and subscribe on whatever platform you listen on. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out on the website at letscombinate.com. Thanks, everybody. Hello, Combi Nation. My name is Subi Sade. I've spent over a decade in medical device, pharma, and combination product development. Our industry feels complicated sometimes. Drugs, devices, clinical trials, submissions, sterilization, validation, design control, risk management, market access, reimbursement. The list goes on. My goal is mastery. So this podcast is to ask questions I have to people who may have the answers. Each week on the Combinate podcast, I talk to someone about their area to further understand and simplify. Whether you're a pharma person trying to understand the next wave of products, or a device person trying to navigate a pharma system you're unfamiliar with, or a newbie in both areas, I invite you to listen, and together we can simplify by combinating. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this special episode of the Combinate podcast. I'm your host, Subi Sadeh, and we are joined once again, back for more, by Susan Needle. And, you know, Susan's been on twice before. Once she just went through combination products, generally speaking, and the second time she took us on a world tour. In this episode, I wanted to talk about Susan's new book. Before I ask Susan any questions, I did want to say that in going through the book and, and the author list, I did find five previous Combinate podcast guests. So Fran, Shannon, Khadija, Ed, and Susan. So, you know, in good company, I suppose. But it was it was really good getting through the book. Welcome, Susan. Hey, thank you for having me again. So the first thing I wanted to dive into is I had one of the previous presidents of ASQ on a while back, and he was walking through the different sort of personalities he dealt with. I'm a big fan of Philip Crosby, you know, quality is free. I did a whole episode on it. And he was telling me about how the difference in temperament between a Philip Crosby and a Duran. And, you know, I know you have a background in quality, one of the things I like about you. And, you know, most people in quality have the Duran textbook, right? The really big one. But Duran didn't write it by himself. It was a big team effort. And that's how I look at this book. The front cover says edited by Susan Needle. So I'm just wondering, why did you decide on that approach? And was it easier having more people involved or harder? <laughs> I chose that approach because I wanted to make sure that I was tapping into people that had a reputation for subject matter expertise across the industry. And while I have a good amount of expertise in a number of topics and end in the combination product space, each of us brings a different context and different experiences associated with combo. And I really wanted to take advantage of that in putting this book together to make it hopefully bring the most value possible to industry. And 
with that, take a step back. I've been teaching at University of Maryland, Baltimore campus, the combination products graduate school curriculum for a number of years together with Manfred Mater. And then it occurred to me that delivering the message with multiple industry perspectives would probably bring the most value. The other piece of it is early on in the development of this work, I reached out within the FDA to see if they would be willing to engage at all in any of the peer review on the chapters. And, and gratefully, Bar Wiener, John Bar Wiener at the Office of Combination Products agreed to be a point person for that. And I think that knowing that the book has gone through that peer review to get that robust feedback to make sure that the information that was shared is as robust as possible and written in a way that it is lasting. And I think on the words I've heard are, don't let it go stale. So I was trying to write in a style that would allow the material that's included in the book to be something that would persist over time, not just be dependent on the real-time dynamics of all the regulations as they keep evolving. So those are all components in the decision on the way the book got written. So did it make it easier? Oh, no. It made it much, much harder. If I was writing by myself, I knew what I needed to say and I could hold myself accountable for, Susan, you're behind on your timeline, get things done. But when you're working with people across multiple companies across the globe to get their input and recognizing everybody has their own priorities and getting this book out for the industry wasn't necessarily everybody's priority, it became a big, cha a big challenge. It was a very heavy lift to be able to get the book out. It took about three years of work wow. to be able to put this together. And, and again, the intention is that it becomes a valuable resource for industry to lean on over time. So you, you just touched on it a little bit, but one thing that I was, when I was going through the book, one perhaps difficulty I saw, and it's, it's a, just a difficulty that's in, baked into this type of subject matter with regulatory changes happening all the time. How, how do you make a book evergreen? Yeah, so some of the challenge was that the, the regs were changing real time as the book was being written. That's right. And when changes were happening, like under the EUMDR, there were parts of the book that had to get rewritten, you know? So like we had written it and then, uh-oh, big regulation change. We need to step back and rewrite. And it was in that process that we started to focus in on what are the common themes? What are the things that people need to focus in on in terms of concepts? to drive safety, efficacy, reliability, usability of these products. And that became the focal point of how to write it so that those considerations are going to be there regardless of the regulatory framework that gets applied from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. And so that became the foundation of how the chapters were written. Naturally, because some of the chapters are more dependent on specific regulations. So there's chapter 14 in the book is the evolving international regulatory environment. And I partnered together with Stephanie Gobel, who formerly was at Tubesud and is now at her own consulting company, together with Vicky Verna, who's at Confinus, and Shereen Marty, who's also a consultant at Confinus. And they partnered with me to be able to really search out what was happening with the regulations around the world. And we did the best that we could to be able to make sure that that chapter was current 
And likewise with the appendix, Diraj Bell was a PhD student and he actually worked with me to reach out across the globe and look at all the different regions and what were the interpretations being applied to combination products. And there's a note at the very beginning of that appendix that specifically says, these regulations are dynamic, they are evolving, make sure that you're staying current. And we've included hyperlinks in it as a means of allowing people to look at those specific links to understand what is the current state of the art in the moment that you're actually trying to do work in a given region. Yeah, I, I, have, I have notes here on each chapter. I'm going to jump around a little bit. You just touched on the, the evolving regulatory landscape, and it, it reminded me of the CGMP chapter that you co-wrote with Mike Wallenstein. And one thing that I thought was interesting in, in that chapter is it was focused on U.S. and ICH only. And I was... U.S. I was, and, and EU. US and, US and EU. You, yes, excuse me. US and EU. And I was wondering why that is. Are there no other CGMPs? No. So the reason that we did that is because if you look around the regulatory frameworks that are being applied around the world, those two approaches seem to be the common themes. So are there nuances in different jurisdictions? Absolutely. But the foundational approach that the US FDA is taking, which is really the most maturely developed in terms of the combination product CGMPs, that one is, in my view, the clearest to write about because of the maturity of it. But a number of countries around the world are leaning on this EU approach where there's a notified body type authority that is working in a coordinated way with a competent authority for approval of combined use systems. So this coordinated review process is, I'd say, a trend that is happening. And so by mentioning and focusing on the EU approach and the U.S. approach, it really covers the approach that's being taken in most parts of the world. The biggest challenge, though, that when you think about that is, you know, in the U.S., there's a very comprehensive view of the combination product in each of its constituent parts when it comes to CGMPs. When you go to other parts of the world and even under this EU approach, there's this focus of, okay, if, if it's a drug device combination, then we're going to have this notified body opinion or potentially a CE on that device constituent part, but they're not doing the holistic review of the CGMPs of and an inspection against that device constituent part. Their focus is more on that primary mode of action or the lead center that is reviewing that product. And so that's still a gap and that is actually hindering progress on things like mutual recognition agreements specific to combination products. Right now they apply to drug only or they might apply to, you know, you've got MDSAP, which will apply to a device only but they don't have mutual recognition specific to combination products because of the, the uh, distinct interpretation of how those CGMPs are being evaluated. And, and the definitions, it sounds like, too. What did you learn as part of writing this book? I learned a lot. <laughs> I learned that there's all these things that you do day to day that you just know. And having to translate that into writing is 
quite the challenge. I learned that I learned a different writing style as well. Again, that whole point of you want to write for something to be, to not go stale. And the style with which you have to capture your words becomes much more focused and purposeful. So that became a key part of it. And then obviously going from different subject matter where you're working with different subject matter experts who have different levels of depth of expertise on the different topics. As an editor for some of those chapters, you're learning that topic to the, you know, hopefully the same level as that expert has it because you've got to really do an effective review. And so to provide the effective feedback and to work with the FDA to get feedback and, you know, integrate it all in. It changed my perspective on how writing is capturing the messages and how to ensure that it's really crisp and clear so that hopefully people will understand the same meaning out of what you're writing. And I have a whole new appreciation of what goes into writing guidance and, and regulations across the world because that is a challenge. It's it's interesting that you got more of an appreciation for that, just given how many <laughs> standards and guidance committees you're part of. I, I think that's funny. But the, you know, the, the, the part that you started with about translating what you know into writing is really interesting. You know, I'm thinking about the quote of to write is to think. So yeah, in a way that's going to be useful for them. And, and again, for me, it's a bit of a legacy, right? I've had a nice long career in the industry. And something that I take pride in is continuing to make positive impacts. And I really wanted this to be a book to make positive impacts for the industry as it continues to grow. And as you get new players and people don't necessarily, they're not necessarily as familiar with all the different aspects end to end of combination products. So it's a chance to be able to capture all that and, and then to recognize everything that you do know, and you don't even realize you know it and to be able to capture that in writing. And that's a challenge. And that's. That's, that's actually what I was telling you as, as we were starting, you know, before we started recording that, you know, some of the chapters were good review of things that I, f I feel like I, I know in some ways, but other chapters were really big aha, particularly some of the regulatory chapters. I think in, you know, just starting out, starting from the beginning, right. I want to go through Subi's notes, notes and uh, notes, comments, and questions. So in, in the intro, you know, I kind of learned that combination product definition, the seed was planted way before part three and part four came out. It was planted in, in the food drug, food drug and cosmetic act, I think in 1990. And so it, you know, it didn't really speak to it entirely in the book, but what took so long, it's like 20, 26 years or something like that from planting that seed to, you know, the regulations finally coming out. So I can't comment on what took so long, right? What I can say is that I think that regulators recognize that as you're bringing these different constituent parts together, there's complexities that come. One thing that I found interesting, and even as I was building a case study in the book, back in 2002 timeframe, there was a, a pretty big catastrophe that had happened in the industry where there was a, and without getting into all the specifics, there was a, a pre-filled syringe product that was being used and 
the focus, of course, in, in its development was the drug and the formulation of the drug. It went to the market and then they were like, hey, wait, we want to get efficiencies out of this. Let's make a change here on the device. So let's make a change here on the surfactant that's in the formulation. We're going to make it process better. And all of a sudden there were like 13 deaths in the marketplace. So I referenced that at the end of chapter five, when I'm talking about product development, I, I refer to that specific case. But the, the point there was that that all was occurring right around the time the Office of Combination Products got established. Whether or not that was a trigger for it, I have no idea. But what I do know is that there was an increased recognition right around then. Hey, wait, there can be changes to these different constituent parts that people are bringing together in these products that if people are not thinking holistically for combined use systems, you can end up with some really serious consequences. And I think that that's a great trigger for, unfortunately, a great trigger for we need to start applying controls. And if you look around the world many times, and even and in the United States, whenever there's, you know, some big medical horrific event, it seems to trigger, oh, wait, we need to put controls in place. In Europe, the UMDR was triggered with breast implants, right? That it was like, hey, wait, we need to put better controls in our systems. And again, I don't know whether that was a turning point that triggered FDA for this particular Office of Combination products, but clearly the timing of it is interestingly coincident with the formation of OCP. And, and I think regulators around the globe, though, are seeing that there is a need for this coordinated review mechanism. And I think some of them, because of the different regulatory frameworks, are more effective at it than others. And, you know, there's, there's money that gets involved in terms of, you know, the, the monies that governments take in as part of filing and approvals and things like that. So changing the regulatory framework is not always possible to adopt to the different types of products, but at least if you can get people focused on what does it take to drive safety and efficacy and usability and reliability, those are the things that I think we can focus in on, even in the dynamic regulatory environment. So moving, moving into regulatory, my, my personal favorite chapter, the one where, where I learned a lot was the regulatory chapter written by Suzette. I thought that the Speaking to essential principles, the tying to the ISO 16142 standard, the CTD tables. I did a whole episode with Nidra Heckman on yep. CTDs. The how does one reconcile referencing things like DMFs, MAFs, and you know all this newer stuff around established conditions. Lot in there. Maybe can you comment on that part of the book? Yeah, so Suzette Rohn did a wonderful job working on that chapter, and we actually had a number of iterations that went back and forth with the FDA, specific oh. to that chapter because we weren't always aligned. <laughs> so the final chapter that got published is the chapter that is reflective of, okay, this is where we're aligning to, you know, this is how it gets done. I can't even recall. I, I went through so many final versions in the editing process to come up to the final published version. That I can't even remember the exact nuances of what got changed, but there were parts of it where, you know, we were challenging some of the thoughts of, you know, this is the way something should happen. And that might be a new, received as a new paradigm. Uh, yeah, new paradigm in terms of how regulated, regulators might look at that. And so we actually had to think about that and reshape that a little bit to make sure that 
it was something, again, that wouldn't go stale, that people could leverage and say, okay, this is the approach that you're going to take for these combined use products moving forward. Mm. We talked about CGMPs already, but you know, we talked about why only US and EU. What I liked about that chapter is the inclusion of the case studies and the warning letters and the different things that one would consider that's specific to this section. I thought the, on the drug side, the elaboration on reserve and retained samples was, I mean, more elaborate than I thought would be in, in like a particular section of a book. And you co-wrote that. What was, what was writing that chapter like? So the, so the bulk of anything that was U.S. basically I wrote and anything that was EU, Mike Wallace team wrote. And then we worked together to make sure that it all meshed together properly. So something that was important to me in writing that chapter was providing also the templates, you know, that people could use as a frame of reference as they're doing their work, because I know people struggle as they're working their way through, wait, how does this apply to me? And we didn't want to just say, oh, for your pure device, this is, you know, thinking from a pure device mindset. It was really what's unique about this because it's a combination product and trying to frame out those CGMPs so that somebody could execute against them and understand what's, what is distinctly interpreted from a combination product perspective and the device called out provisions perspective compared to those things that have the same names under the drug world, but they're interpreted differently. So I was really trying to get at, this is what's unique and this is why we focus on Kappa. This is why we focus on purchasing controls and, and here's how to go about it to be successful in your own business as you're doing it. So I hope that that helps with that. And then Mike did a great job because he, I think Novartis was actually one of the first to get notified body opinion successfully approved and a combination product successfully approved under the new framework with UMDR. I could be wrong about that, but my memory says that. And so he had some great experience, you know, firsthand with managing through that. So again, taking some of those best practices and building that in so that people that are struggling with EUMDR for their combination products at least have something to turn to that says, okay, we tried to take all the mud and turn it into something that's clear. And then there's still some mud there because, you know, things like significant change, there's things that we're still waiting for the health authorities to bring clarity to, but to the best that we could to be able to help companies out. That's what we've tried to do is bring that clarity to the chapter. Moving on to risk management, written by you, Rick, and Ed Bills. What I thought was interesting, two things in that chapter. So first, the starting out with the ISO 14971 versus ISO 31000 and distinguishing between a risk management system that has harm and a risk management system that is more business and costs risk. I thought, I thought that was a really business. good business risk was a really good foundation to start the chapter on delineating the differences, but there was, there was a part of that chapter around considering risk management with, in the context of combined use and not drug versus device. And I actually always have this thought of 10, 20, 30 years down the, lo- the road, I'm, I think we're going to be like laughing that we had two different groups and two different systems and two different so on. What are your thoughts on that? So here's the reality, right? People do risk management under ICHQ9R1, and they've been doing it for years in the pharmaceutical industry. And now with, well, now that it's R1, 
there's a renewed emphasis on it. And I think they've done some good job introducing this term hazard into the ICHQ-9 document that wasn't included before. But in the drug world, in the biologic world, usually you say the product is the process, the process is the product. So when they're doing the risk management using an ICHQ-9 or one, the focus really is making sure that that process, you know, I'm baking the cake and I want to make sure the cake is going to turn out, right? So is the process that I'm going to give, that I'm, that I'm using going to give me the strength, quality, identity, purity, those standard CQAs associated with my drug? And that's the focus. It's like the CPPs, CMAs, but making sure that that output, I've, I can't do a whole lot to change it once I've created it. So I need to make sure that my process is very well controlled. And so ICHQ-9 has been very focused on that. When it comes to ISO 14971, you know what? We need the outputs of ICHQ-9, right? You need to know what the critical quality attributes are of that drug. You need to understand what the critical process parameters, critical material attributes, critical quality attributes, you need all of that associated with the drug. Those are inputs into your device and your, your combination product risk management process. And so you're dependent on both systems. It's not one or the other. It really is both. And the focus on the device side, ISO 14971, is harms and hazards. So while ICHQ9R1 has now introduced the term hazard, a hazard is a potential source of harm. So it's the beginnings of under ICHQ9R1, they're this tie into harm, but that's not been there previously. It's been this process focus. Now we're looking at it and saying, hey, you know what? We've got to look at what are these hazards and how do they connect to the harms and what controls are we putting in place to prevent harm? The other thing that that chapter does dig into, and this is something that will help people out, I think on the drug side and the device side, is there's a lot of confusion about, well, what's a hazard? We all do failure modes effects analysis. Isn't that the same as risk management? And it's not. That failure modes effects analysis is focused on identifying failures. It's, it's a reliability tool. You know, what are those failures and how can we p- potentially prevent them or, you know, put controls in to avoid them? But if I have failure modes that persist and that could be potential sources of harm, those are considered hazards. And now I'm going down my hazard harm analysis route, which is the typical, that's what ISO 14971 is about. So that chapter, clearly it's one of my passions. When I think about combination product risk management, it's how do you effectively draw together the risk management under both of those umbrellas, Q9, 14971, and recognize how they need to integrate. So I think that that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. The the product is the process and the process is the product. You started with that. Is that to say that you think that there might ne- still necessary, it might still be necessary at some point in the future to maintain the two separate There's a separate or- piece of them. Right. You need to look at each constituent part of your combination product. So my product is my process. My process is my product on the drug side stands. I still need that. Yeah. I also I'm saying what I'm saying, why 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 couldn't you apply that to the device side? An element is applied to the device side when you're doing your process FMEAs. Mm. So the reality is when I'm trying to identify what are those 
What are those failure modes associated with my process? What are the controls I need with my process? What's the design space that applies to the device constituent part, which many times in the drug world, people think of design space as only a drug thing, but it also applies on the device side. And so can they be merged into one? Yeah, potentially. But the reality is I think people can can still, it's, it's not restricted that they have to be, right? Mm. They can still be thought of as separate, but then they have to be brought together. They have to be integrated in the end. And that's the piece that I think people struggle with is that ultimate integration because you've got to figure out, hey, wait, what are the risks that come from the interactions of these different constituent parts with one another? And can any of those hazards, are there any new hazards that get introduced because I brought the constituent parts together? Any new hazardous situations that get presented? And does the severity of harm change or get worse because I brought them together? Sometimes that severity of harm goes down because I've integrated them. And it's that holistic view of things that people need. And in, in, in other words, you can maintain the intent by following a similar process for both, or you can follow a different process for both and integrate and, and achieve the same end. So yes. moving to, to human factors, an area that I've grown to, to become a little bit more passionate about. I, I actually posted a post on LinkedIn maybe a year ago and, and Shannon has been on the show, but that chapter written by Shannon, Susan, you, Stephanie, Bjorg, and Teresa. I like the common mistakes, particularly speaking to, you know, things that are pretty straightforward, like not submitting a summative protocol, but speaking also to, you know, if if you are putting together a summative study, thinking through, well, what have I done to establish that framework for a study? And then a lot, I mean, I think most of the chapter was focused on case studies, digital health versus, you know, just a regular delivery device versus emergency use, or, you know, so on and, and changes after post-approval changes and, and stuff like that. How did you guys land on the case studies? So it's, it actually started step back. When we first started building that chapter, it was really, okay, here's combination products, human factors, period. And it was very basic, basic, basic. But as we started to look at basic, 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 it was like, well, what's different? You know, what's unique and different because it's a combination product. And then that caused us to take a giant step back. And with that giant step back, in the beginning, it was Teresa Schubel and Hunter and I had started drafting some case studies of things that people find challenging relative to human factors for combination products. And, and then Shannon and Stephanie got involved and really helped to shape the balance of the chapter. We'd gotten some FDA feedback on the initial case studies that they weren't unique enough to combination products. They were more like, this is just human factors in general. And that's when the step back in these case studies took form. And really framing them out so that people can see how do I deal with these different situations that are unique for combination products. And, and here's a stepwise process that can make you successful in addressing those challenges as you're moving to market. So that's really how it got framed out. You know, obviously you, you picked the hottest topics in combination products and, and wrote a chapter on each of them. We'll, we'll get to post-market safety reporting next, but. I guess as far as human factors goes, that particular area I think is is changing over over time. 
you know, with the different reviews, with maybe the lack of emphasis internationally as much as in the U.S.? Can you maybe speak to that? What I can say is that I think that the U.S. is the most restrictive or the most distinguishing about what the expectations are for human factors. What's a better word for that? The bar is the highest. I think in the United States and regulators around the world, I think, appreciate the fact that that due diligence is being taken in that U.S. approach. So the human factors work that is done to support a U.S. submission is oftentimes recognized and applied in international submissions and accepted. So I think that that's an important aspect of it. I think that people do recognize that that bar is is held pretty high in the approach that we're taking in applying it. Okay. So post-market safety reporting. I think that area is one of the more mature maybe areas. I know there was a lot of collaboration between FDA and industry on the the part B and, and the implementation of that and the associated guidance and so on. You started out with design transfer, which I thought was interesting. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So that chapter starts with design transfer. So when you look at the CGMP chapter, the CGMP chapter covers basically, you know, end to end, here's the part four called the provisions, but the focus of that and the product development chapter, which is chapter five, is really what does it take to go all the way from concept to the point of I'm ready for design transfer. That subsequent chapter, which is focused on life cycle management, is design transfer through post-market. And there's lots of questions that people raise around process validation expectations for a combination product and the timing of it for the device constituent part versus the broader combination product. So tried to focus on the beginning of the chapter on that. And then as we rounded out the chapter, okay, I got this product to market. Now it's time to do your post-market surveillance and vigilance and safety reporting. And with that, similar to what happened with the FDA, where when we were originally, the FDA had issued the guidance on the CGMPs for combination products. There was actually a great collaboration with the U.S. FDA and Office of Combination Products and Industry in helping to refine that guidance when it was issued. The same thing did happen for post-market safety reporting. I think that there was a great effort by the FDA to partner with industry and try and make it as clear as possible, try to minimize redundant reporting. All that said, there's still challenges that industry is facing. And in writing up that portion of the chapter, I partnered with Chadasia to be able to capture what are the lessons learned? What are the best practices that industry should look for? It doesn't prescriptively go through, here's exactly what you need to file, where and to whom and all that. It does give references in the guidance and regulations where to look for to get some of those prescriptive requirements. But it focuses on what are the best practices? What are the watch out for so that you can help industry be successful and help regulators in protecting the safety of the products that are on the market and protecting the patients that are using them. And, and that's really the focus. There was a great presentation done by one of the representatives from US FDA at a Xavier Combination Products Conference a couple of years ago, and Lauren Bateman. And that was also used to help inform what we included in that chapter in terms of post-market safety reporting best practices. So section nine, I think it is of the book on, on yeah, chapter, nine. Chap chapter nine on uh, inspections has two subparts. Obviously, it's a really important topic. One is a little bit more focused on inspection readiness in general. And the, the you know, that one's written by you. 
And then the, the second part of the chapter is focused on U.S. combination product inspections, and that's written by Kim Troutman. So maybe, maybe starting with part B first, as a non-regulatory background person, I thought that the emphasizing the QAR2 minimal and baseline approaches, I thought that was interesting. I actually pulled up Q8 and started going Good. through the, the, the differences there. And then the emphasizing of the, the maturing of the FDA compliance programs, whether it's CEDAR, CBER, or CDRH, and then how the, the center-led inspections happened between the devices. I thought the, all, all of that was really interesting to me and I hadn't been exposed to before, but maybe can you talk through chapter nine as a whole? Yeah, so chapter nine as a whole and having firsthand experience going through combination products inspections with health authorities, I can speak holistically to 9A and 9B. The, the reality is, is that a lot of the challenges that you run into in combination products inspections line up with some of the challenges that you focus on in business when you're just getting into the combination product space. And a big part of that is language making sure that the people that are involved in an inspection understand the language of whoever the inspector is, the investigator is, you know, somebody who's a device person who's now interfacing with somebody from CEDAR or CBER needs to understand the language and the perspectives of that CEDAR or CBER person. And if you're a CEDAR person and CDRH walks in the door, you need to understand the language of device. So if you go into an inspection and everybody in that front room, including the people that are the runners and note takers associated with that inspection, need to be familiar with the terminology that's being used. Because otherwise, when you're communicating with the back room, you may run into some challenges mid-inspection. And I've experienced that firsthand and it can be very comical and stressful all at the same time. And you just have to make sure that you've got the right people involved and that people have the right skill sets for that. And then specific to combination products compliance within the United States, the second part of that chapter is focused on the compliance program that was issued June 4th of 2020. And the intent of that compliance program is to get the different centers aligned in the approach that they take when they walk in to do an inspection at a combination product manufacturer, where historically some of the challenges that people have been experiencing are that because of the different interpretations of language and experience of the different or representatives, they might not have had consistency in those inspections. So that inspection program from the US FDA is intended to try to level the playing field, get everybody operating consistently. So that's what the hints are that are in that chapter. It also calls out specifically one of the big differences is risk management. The focus on risk management in ISO 14971 on a device and a combination products is inspection is a bit different than it is for a drug-led inspection. And that's often a point that trips people up in the combination products world. So that also gets called out in the second part of the chapter. So as we, as we move to close, any closing remarks? Um, I truly hope, like this was a work of passion and to me, a legacy from my career within the industry. And I, I truly do hope that it serves as a resource for people who are just getting into combination products or even people who are experienced in combination products who just need that, you know, that gut check on, hey, am I doing this the right way? The best practices that are included in here, as well as the basic expectations 
that reflect what regulators have communicated around the globe are built into this book. And I hope it's a long, a long lasting resource for people to get a lot of value out of. Well, congratulations on putting it out, Susan. As always, a welcome guest to the show. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me.